House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. And we are at the interview part of the show. Uh, today we are um, talking about uh, Hitler and uh, in reference to a book called Hitler's Suicide, Reasonable Doubt. And on the line we have the author of this book, and uh, we'll talk about the book and the subject. So, Peter David Orr, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Alan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, let's start out. First of all, um, so so the audience um, gets an idea. Um, where do you come from, and how do you get into writing about Hitler? That's a great question. Uh, I'll take you back to the year 2011, and at that time, I was uh, in contact with a person that you may be familiar with. Your audience may know the name from the uh, book Gray Wolf, Gerard Williams, and we were uh, working together, but not in a way that, of course, people might assume. I I was actually in communication with him because I was intent on debunking Gray Wolf. And I was doing it in a friendly way. I was not. I was not attacking him, you know. And 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 as a historian, my attitude is, you know, it's not. It's not to make him look bad or anyone to look good. It's just to find the truth. And at the time, I was absolutely convinced, as are most people, that the uh, standard account of Hitler's suicide in the bunker on April thirtieth, nineteen forty-five, was as it is. You know, the standard account. Um, I believed it and didn't see any reason to doubt it. And I read the book Grey Wolf just out of curiosity. And I reached out to him and I was stunned that he actually was willing to go back and forth with me. So what happened in the process of discussing the book with him, and I was, my attitude was, you know, Gerard, there are parts of this book that just must be fixed. Uh, this can't be true, and this can't be true. Um, but what happened in the process is I was sort of hooked in the process of trying to debunk uh, things that he was saying in the book. But what I was discovering were there other connections that weren't necessarily made in the book that were very intriguing, that actually were making the argument for him. And, um, you know, once you go down that avenue, it becomes very interesting because here I was trying to debunk the book and finding things that were actually in support of his arguments and sharing them with him. And to make a long story short there, you can imagine the day that I realized that I was in myself at a tipping point where what he was saying may not be completely accurate in Grey Wolf, but I was finding enough evidence enough contradictory testimony among those who had supposedly witnessed Hitler's suicide, the burning of his body and destruction of his body, etc., that I had reasonable doubt at that point about the standard account. Hmm. So, um, at that point... Peter, Peter yes. uh, uh, I have yes, a question. Uh, did you already speak to Aubrey Temples about uh, before you spoke to uh, um, Gerard Williams? My association with Gerard began in 2011, but in, oh, okay. in late, 2000, late 2016, Gerard 
sent a message to me after the, our latest back and forth saying, look, I don't want to deal with such and such a person anymore. They keep contacting me to tell me their story. And you handle this. So um, who are you talking about, Gerard? And Gerard gave me the contact information said, well, there's this fellow by the name of Lewis Robinson III, and his father-in-law, a man by the name of Aubrey Temples, he has an interesting story, but it doesn't really fit into Grey Wolf, and I'm tired of dealing with it. So he asked me if I would deal with it. And once again, oh. I, when I heard the story as told to me by Gerard, um, uh, my initial impression was, okay, this doesn't fit in with anything that we know about the possibility that Hitler escapes. So I was completely skeptical. And I know I'm dealing with a 90-some-year-old fellow at this point. So I called up his son-in-law and said, okay, I'm, I'm willing to do interviews with Aubrey, but you have to understand that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push him pretty hard. And Lewis Robinson, his son-in-law, said, well, believe it or not, he's quite sharp for, you know, a guy who's 91 years old. So do what you can and see if he might surprise you how much he can actually remember and, and you know, how um, flexible he is with his memory. So I, I called the fella, and after about 10 minutes, I was flabbergasted. I was Interesting. completely hooked um, on Aubrey's story in the sense of, well, you know, you, you hear details down the line from somebody else telling you, and then you hear the person tell you their own story, and there's, there are always hooks in there that you hadn't heard before. And so you can imagine those 10 minutes turned into 40 minutes and an hour in uh, and, and our first um, interview. And... I pushed him really hard, and I, I you know, I said, I, Aubrey, I, I don't believe your story, and I don't mean to offend you, but um, let's talk about each detail, and do you have the patience to talk about each detail, because if this doesn't hold up, well, then your story cannot be true. If this doesn't hold up, then your story cannot be true, and we went at it um, in sessions like that, seven in a row over a period of six, six and a half months. So you were straight up and, with him. Oh my goodness, yes. Um, and I, you know, here this guy is a legit war hero first. So I had to have some level of respect for the guy, even if I suspected that he was, you know, a little kooky. Now it turned out that he he is not a conspiracy theorist. He's not he's not kooky in any way, shape, or form. Um, he's a just a, a um, salt of the earth, um, unpretentious. Um, genuine. Um, he, he does not get. He, you know, he didn't get flabbergasted with my continual cross examinations of his story. And uh, again, what happened is, I as I pushed him, I found, you know, there were parts of his story that didn't make sense. But then uh, when I would research it, I, oh, that's what he meant. You know, I, because you know, it is true. That Aubrey's memory. We're you know we're dealing with a 90, 91, 92 year old fellow. As I'm, I'm speaking with him, his memory is pretty darn good. But anybody, after all that time, their memory's not going to be perfect. Now, what he had going for him was that over the years, you know, he'd been thinking about this, and 
he he had been treated pretty shabbily by other people that he had told. I mean, he he even had an opportunity to talk to Judge Davidson, um, and that was that was uh, the te- uh, federal district court judge of uh, Texas back in the day in 1963, 1968. They were friends at that time. And uh, the judge was equally fascinated by the story as, as I was. So it's not as if Aubrey hasn't been telling his story. He's been telling, he had been telling his stories from the very beginning. So when he was, for instance, um, liberated, you know, he was a prisoner of war. And when Aubrey was liberated, he was telling the story, trying to tell the story to his, to, to the very first people that he saw. And he wrote a, a very detailed letter, um, you know, as a young soldier, he really believed that he might get this passed up the chain to Eisenhower, and that's what he tried to do. And so the very first person that he met he um, when he was liberated from a very unusual um, small work camp in southern Bavaria, um, he wrote a, a detailed account of exactly what he'd seen, what he had witnessed. Now, so anyway, I, I keep going on and on about this, but the point, the bottom line is that as I tried to debunk his story, I found, similar with what I had experienced with Gerard, more and more things that actually added up and less and less things that I could actually debunk. So, um, I do believe I am convinced, and it's not a matter of faith, it's a matter of does the evidence show me, um, and does what Aubrey said add up? Did he see Hitler... Um, in a little village in southern Bavaria called Neusdorf am Inn. Um, I believe he did. And I believe Hitler was on his way from Neusdorf the morning that he saw him, on his way to Innsbruck, um, Austria, and then on to Spain from there. And uh, Spain, um, is, is Argentina involved, or is it Spain as well? Well, um, I believe... Uh, again, I'm not going to back this up with any evidence because this is one of the subjects I have purposely not tackled. I believe from Spanish territory, he then went on to Argentina and perhaps other places. But I must okay. admit that my level of expertise and research in, in, in that particular realm um, is insufficient. And so I could not... I don't feel comfortable making any proclamations or with any level of confidence other than I believe that he escaped and made it to South America. Hmm. Yeah, Yeah. we've had Gerard on. I think I've had him on three times. I've known him a few years. He's a nice guy. Um, He's done a lot of of research as far as the Argentina and and that area. Um, Yeah. I I, I just wonder, okay, so um, in general... So why is there such a bite back to this whole idea that Hitler escaped? Like, because as, as soon as, what, what I mean is as soon as you say that, or as soon as you have uh, anybody writes any book toward this, this field, or uh, gets into the idea that uh, Hitler didn't die in the bunker, they're labeled uh, in a negative way as a conspiracy theorist or something like that. But why you, is there right. such, but why is there such a bite back? Like, why do people... Um, feel that way automatically? Uh, it depends on the person. Um, and, and my dealings with people that are like you describe, they come at that from all different angles, actually. I've, 
I've encountered probably, you know, 10 to 12 different distinct groups that have a, an objection, a visceral objection, if you will, to the, the entire notion. Um, there are people who I would describe as secret admirers, people who wouldn't come out in public and say they think that Hitler was pretty cool, this, that, and the other thing. But one of the things that they have in common, those secret admirers, is that they have um, a faith that Hitler was sick, very sick, not able to go out in the streets of Berlin and fight as he wanted to. You know, they believe that Hitler wanted to go out and die fighting Bolshevism, if you will, um, but that he couldn't because of just how ill he was. And there's a certain, there's a certain, um, how can I say this? Among those who, who actually respect Hitler, they, they respect that. He committed, he stayed to the very end and committed suicide um, instead, of, instead of allowing himself and, to be captured by the Soviets. And so that makes him, in their eyes, a hero. So if I say something like, he escaped, those people who regard Hitler as doing something heroic by staying there to the very end, they're very offended, and they, they hate me. They just, there's no other way to describe it. Um, or anybody else who might dare to say that, they're, they're going to object. Um, Not so romantic. Another, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are romantics in, the, in that sense. Um, and you're not going to change their mind because it's an ideology. It's a part of the fabric of what they are, who, who they are, what they stand for. Um, are they Nazis, neo-Nazis? They might not admit it, but it's probably accurate. Now, there are a whole bunch of people that uh, object for, uh, how can I say this in general? They think that I'm profiteering off of quote-unquote dumb people. So if you say something that goes against the grain of whatever's established history, automatically the label comes out, you're just greedy. Uh, you're bought and sold, or you're a profiteer, or you're taking advantage of uninformed people. How dare you? That kind of attitude. So um, any retelling of the standard narrative, uh, even for the sake of comparison and, like, asking a question, um, you'll automatically get that reaction from those who approach uh, the idea that Hitler escaped or didn't die in Berlin. Um you know, for that reason. Um, of course, my take on this is I can forgive them because I can, I mean, there, I can, there's a certain truth to the fact that people do get taken advantage of in the, in the world of writing and journalism and history. I mean, fake news is real uh, to people. I mean, and, and do people sometimes get taken advantage of by this? That, that's very true, but it's not my motive. My motive is not to make money, and it, I'd like to turn this around on people if they're willing to listen and say, let's think for a moment about how much money was made on the story that is accepted. Um, whether it's Hugh Trevor Roper's you know, multiple editions of his Hitler's Last Days, I mean, the guy made millions. Um, and it's not just him. It's, it's all of the, you know, the quote-unquote bunker witnesses who told 
you know, supposedly their story. It turns out not to be really their story, but just a repeated regurgitated story that somebody else told them to tell. They made, now well, each of these, uh, you know, bunker witnesses, they made lots of money too in, in films and uh, you, you name it. So, okay. So is there profit to be made off of selling books? If you object to the idea that somebody might make profit by selling a book, well, hey, that's, that's you know that's your belief. That's, I don't see personally anything wrong with a person uh, making money off of something they've worked hard on. In this case, for instance, for the, for the book Hitler's Suicide: Reasonable Doubt, that's ten years of research for me. And I right. and that. so, what can I say to people? Except it's a, a, a long, hard slog, and um, many, 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 many hours uh, beyond that I could even count. So, um, well, what I was going to say, so when you talk about the witnesses, um, how were they, um, so you're, how, how do I put this? So the, the witnesses to uh, the bunker and, and his death and all that stuff, are you saying that they um, didn't tell the truth or what? what what can you th- okay well, maybe explain that how about that yeah this is an involved answer so i hope yeah. your audience will forgive me but um memory is an interesting thing um experiencing something as traumatic as the battle of berlin in itself um plays havoc with the mind being in the bunker with hitler adds another level to that being someone who was lock, stock, and barrel devoted to this man puts another level on top of that. Um, so every time that we think about what they say, we have to put it in context, and we also have to put it in context of what everyone else said. I just, I'll just give you a, a brief statistic. When I go through all of the eyewitness testimony including the hearsay eyewitness testimony and those who sold, you know, direct um, things either um, about uh, an association with Hitler in the bunker or some direct aspect of his death or his burning or burial. You'll include all those things in, in that discussion. What you find is about 75% of everything said is just provably wrong in one way or another. So now, on the surface, that looks like it's a slam dunk, but it's not. Uh, And the reason it's not is because, truthfully, most people who witness some sort of a crime, their memory isn't all that accurate either. So keep that in mind. So I'm not saying that just because 75% of what the eyewitnesses say is incorrect and provably wrong, that automatically... um, they must be lying. What I'm saying is um, there's a lot of inaccuracy there that is just human nature to begin with. So that's the first level to this. The second level is that when you start analyzing, uh, it's roughly 80 witnesses that you could dig into in, in any depth. What you discover is that, you know, 65, 66 of them are hearsay witnesses exclusively. 
they're treated in many history books that repeat the standard account as if they were eyewitnesses, but they weren't actually eyewitnesses. They were told something by somebody else, and they passed on in a very convincing way. So you have to wade through all of those people and find out exactly what did they actually see and where did this information come from. And once you wade through all of those hearsay witnesses, what you discover is you can boil it down to two people. At 65, 66 people can be boiled down to two. So their testimony, in other words, rests upon the word of two men who were present throughout the entire process of Hitler's suicide, burning, and burial. And perhaps you've heard the name Otto Gunsche and Heinz Linge. So Heinz Linge was Hitler's valet, and uh, Otto Gunsche was Hitler's number one personal adjutant, his number one personal aide. Um, and so what you have to do next is you have to then look at each of the each of those individuals who have made statements affirming they were eyewitnesses, direct eyewitnesses to any part of it, and you have to apply the same standard you do with the hearsay witnesses, and you have to break them down to see if they have certain things in common, um, if they have certain stories in common, and they all do. And again, what's remarkable is it all boils down to those same two men once again. So just to make a long story short, I mean, I could go on and on about, about individual witnesses if you want me to, but I'll just give you one example of how fragile all that what seems like a mountain of testimony actually is. So if you take Guncha and Linga, both of these individuals were captured by the Soviets following, you know, following the Battle of Berlin, and they ended up in Soviet prison, and they were interrogated. And they were interrogated endlessly. Um, number one, their stories morphed. So the stories they told to begin with when they were captured were one thing, and then they became B, C, D, E, F, and through the nine and ten years that they were in Soviet captivity, when they were the individuals that were used by the Soviets to craft the story for Stalin himself, what you find is that they were, they were mystified, the, the interrogators, the Soviets themselves were, oh my, what are we going to do with this? Because there's so many inconsistencies, and we have, to, we have to iron them out, and we have to give Stalin something. So they were under a tremendous, tremendous amount of pressure in the first you know, year or two to craft a narrative that Stalin would accept. And you can imagine the kind of fear that those who were in Soviet intelligence, what kind of fear that they faced if, they, if it wasn't acceptable to their boss, if you will. So... Um, if, if you put that on top of this, the changing testimony in Soviet hands among the two most important witnesses, and you start widening, the widening that circle beyond the two, because there were others who were also captured, uh, Wilhelm Monke, for instance, um, and Hans Bauer, Hitler's personal pilot. You know, these individuals were caught by the Soviets and also interrogated, and the Soviets got so frustrated with their stories contradicting the stories of the two primary witnesses that, I mean, they did some pretty nasty things to some of these guys, as you might imagine. And um, it, it was mystifying to the, you know, to the 
to those who really didn't know the story, why am I being kept here for nine and ten years and ask the same questions over and over and over again? Well, the bottom line is that the Soviets knew darn well that it wasn't adding up. And if anyone reads carefully the testimony as it grew, as the stories morphed in Soviet captivity, just that alone should, you know, raise a red flag, pun intended, right? Um, on the other hand, these guys eventually were set free. In 19, between 1952 and 1956, most of the bunker witnesses that the Soviets had in their possession were allowed to go home. And then what's interesting is, of course, everybody wanted to know, oh, does, does this match the story that we've been told? So they were endlessly blitzed with you know, reporters and journalists and historians. And, and, of course, there was a great deal of mystery. And, and from the get-go, for instance, Otto Gunsha or Heinz Linge or Hans Bauer, they were being asked by the Western you know, media, what happened? And what you have again is now it's not just A through G morph, it's now G, H, I, J. It continues to change. Their testimony uh, about what they supposedly saw continues to change. And they start then, uh, I hate to call them liars because um, those two individuals are definitely liars, but there's some, some of the other prisoners were lying because they just didn't know any better. But these two guys, um, they were allowed to collaborate, unfortunately, when they were in Soviet captivity and get their story straight. So, Peter, um, uh, yes. You know, one thing it seems to me, if indeed uh, Hitler was alive, that would be the other reason why they would continue this deception. Indeed. Um, whether Gunsha or Linga knew that Hitler had survived, I, I myself, I, I'm not. I'm not convinced. I don't. I do not have smoking gun evidence to say they knew for sure. And let me tell you why. Um, before they came back from Soviet captivity, the the, the um, Soviet counterintelligence—they're not dummies. What what they did is they would they would take people they had turned, who were also German POWs that, that may be known to Linga or Gunsha or Bauer or Munka, or any other high-profile um, Nazi captives, and they would infiltrate their jail cell with these friendlies. And um, one of those friendlies was a, uh, the, the most important Wehrmacht brigadier general in World War II, and his, his name was Dr. Walter Schreiber. Uh, Dr. Walter Schreiber was, had discussions with all of these witnesses, you know what they told him? We don't know anything. Flat out. Hmm. Linga, Gunsha, Bauer, they all admitted, we really don't know. Um, could Hitler be alive? It's possible. We didn't see anything. Not, 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 not only did they admit that their story was a lie, they said they didn't see anything or have any part of it. So uh, that's that's a real well. That kind of makes bother, sense in a way because if if he indeed was going to try to uh, fake the suicide, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who that is. You don't want anybody to know besides him or whoever is going with him. Correct. And it, it, my research indicates that the crew in charge of 
what I I would not I would not call it a suicide. I'd call it a pseudocide. The the agent in charge was um, Sicherheitsdienst Heinrich Gestapo Müller. That's the guy in charge. He's the guy that got Hitler out. He's the guy that put on a fake death. And it was it was obviously very convincing to a lot of people. So um, I get back for a moment to their um, the arrival of these key witnesses. In the mid fifties, they were called to testify in in front of a uh, Bavarian court. That Bavarian court had been established. Get a load of this to officially declare Hitler dead. Now keep in mind that they called 43 witnesses uh, and the judge and the lead prosecuting attorney, the Germans don't call them that, but that makes sense to a, an American audience. They interviewed all of these witnesses, and once again, all their stories were filled with inconsistencies, contradictions, outright lies, and they grow again. Uh, they grow by leaps and bounds in ways that are so embarrassing that to this day the Bavarian state government will not publicly release those documents. Well, that's they interesting. Won't. It's just filled. It, it's, it would be so embarrassing that this was a miscarriage of. It's a fraud, Alan. Let me tell you flat out. The judge in charge of this case that proclaimed Hitler dead in 1956, he's a Nazi himself. And he was not only a Nazi, but he was he was the local federal judge in charge of Berchtesgaden, Hitler's own you know Bavarian hometown, close to the Berghof. And his right hand man, get a load of this, the guy that did all the interviews and funneled all of the evidence through to make this conclusion that Hitler was indeed dead and could proclaim him dead. This fellow, he was second in command to. Heinrich Gestapo Müller. Oh, she isn't that interesting. So we have two died-in-the-wool Nazis that are proclaiming Hitler officially dead, and we don't question that. I, 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 I don't see how historians like Ian Kershaw, who was one of the few who has been given access to some of these documents, couldn't see through this. I mean, or even question it. It makes no sense to me. Anyway. But um, when you mess with the standard narrative, you have to unexplain a lot of things, too. So maybe it was just too much. Hmm. So why do you think that the, um, the agencies nowadays um, don't go back and kind of do the research you're doing? And why aren't they investigating um, Hitler and stuff like that? Like, what, they don't seem to be that interested. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I think there are people who are interested within those agencies, but I think as a general practice, this case has been put to rest for a long time in terms of an active investigation. People assume, for instance, that um, early on that American investigators, counterintelligence officers, knew it was a slam dunk case. You know, we know Hitler was killed in the bunker. We know he committed suicide. That, that first premise is fundamentally flawed. That's the opposite of the truth. Um, they didn't know what to do to begin with. Um, there's no better person to talk about when it comes to that key first assessment than uh, a fellow named Bill Heimlich. Um, 
Heimlich was uh, head of counterintelligence in Berlin. He conducted the first full-scale American investigation into the uh, the, you know, the suicide story uh, or Hitler's possible whereabouts. And after six months of investigation, he said flat out, this story makes no sense. Um, it makes more sense that Hitler escaped. Um, and you have you have to dig pretty deep to find all those other um, associated American intelligence officers who went down the same you know trail because you know I have to put this in context. This investigation is taking place in the summer of 1945 to begin with, and it continues into the fall of 1945. But the priority. Um, and this is a long about a long around uh, way of answering your question. The priority between the politicians and the investigators didn't match. So, for instance, the priority among the politicians was let's put together the ICC and pre- preparation for the Nuremberg trials. Let's put together the framework for that and make some key decisions about that. And we'll let this. Um, investigation continue behind the scenes as it develops, but they were already making political decisions as a four-power pact, if you will, discussions. I think it was the London conference in the summer of 1945 where they made a decision. We are not going to prosecute Hitler in the Nuremberg trials uh, in absentia like they did Bormann in absentia um, because it's just Unsettled, and it's politically expedient just to act as if he's dead and proceed with the trial and not even raise that as a question because there are more important things to do, like winning the peace. You see, so the long, uh, the short answer to the long story to your question is it's about political priorities standing in the way of investigations or ignoring investigations or moving ahead with other more important things. Hmm. What was the biggest surprise? What was the biggest surprise when you were doing this? Wow. Um, The biggest surprise was the forensic evidence. You know, growing up, just about, you know, about like everybody else, I suppose, you know, I was fascinated because I'm, you know, I'm a history guy. I was, even as a kid, I was fascinated with reading all the stories and, um, magazine articles and books that I could get my hands on, especially about the forensic details of of, of Hitler's death. Um, what really surprised me is how flimsy it turns out all of that was, too. And it's kind of sad looking back as a kid because, you know, you have all these things that are imagined in your mind, and it turns out that, well, you know, it's a good story, but there really isn't sufficient evidence to even say, for instance, that the dentition that the Soviets and now the Russians have been showing for decades is, is Hitler's. Um, it is Hitler's, but it's not the correct set, for instance. Um, things like that are just, um, they were sad surprises, you know? Yeah. Sad surprises in, in the sense that, you know, you, 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 you don't want Hitler to have gotten away. And you're discovering that even even some of the most widely assumed forensic stuff, everything from his blood type to DNA tests that were done, it all, it all points in the opposite direction. 
Hmm. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. So you said this now. This took you ten years to go through and get all get this together. Yeah. Now keep in mind that when I say ten years, ten years of research. Um, you, when you start out on a path like this, sometimes you don't even realize what path you're on. So ten years ago puts me in you know 2010 to 2011, and at that point, I, I'm just as as, as your. Um, as any historian would do, I'm always gathering information. And at that point, like I mentioned, I was going after Gerard to debunk what he had written and gathering information. And so, you know, that's built over the years. And uh, it's been a good three years of steady writing to finish the last book, uh, Hitler's Suicide Reasonable Doubt, at 661 pages and almost 1,300 annotated, you know, footnotes. So it was a heck of a lot of work. I'm teaching a full day, and then I'm coming home, and I'm working five and six hours uh, almost every day for for almost three years. So it, it um, a lot of hard work. The uh, the you said that like the forensics is off, and then uh, with um, do now let's say he did escape. Uh, you said that you did not focus anything on Argentina, but that's probably the if no. if he did indeed escape, that's likely the location that he would gone to uh, after Spain. At least, yeah, at least initially, it makes it makes sense in in terms of the politics. So we're going there first. Of course, the politics changed in 1956, so you could imagine that that might have changed all after 1956 as well. Um, <clears throat> As Gerard Williams has pointed out in Grey Wolf, um, and a few other historians and journalists who have been barking up that tree for a while, you know, they find some evidence of Hitler being in southern Brazil or perhaps in Paraguay or Uruguay. Um, I, 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 again, I'm just going to say it flat out. I haven't done the due diligence to, to say one way or the other where he ended up ultimately and how long he stayed in point A or point B or point C. Right. So I was just kind of curious because here's a, an extreme narcissist megalomaniac that now has yeah. to hide, hide the rest of his life. I'm, I was just curious, you know, if I can't, it's hard to, you know, anybody to put themselves in his shoes to see if that would be doable, uh, that, that he would not, uh, Attempt, a, let's say, a Napoleon, a Napoleon thing. Try to kind of come back. Uh, but uh, so I'm. That's that's the kind of problem. Uh, is that maybe your next area of research, or are you going to stick with the first part where because there's likely more material to find? Um, Alan, I, I'm, I must confess that my mind has not thought to that next level. Uh, where <laughs> I'm going to go next, I, I, I don't honestly know. I can tell you this much. What I've bitten off at this point is a heck of a lot to chew. So keeping your head wrapped around that material for an interview such as this, for instance, is it's not an easy task. And so my mind has not gone elsewhere yet. <laughs> hmm. what, do you, what do you hope people get? Um, so they pick up the book, they read it, and they come away with what? So I'm hoping that what they will do is just that, it will, that the weight of the evidence um, will open their mind 
to looking more carefully at what they've been told is the truth. And I'm not trying to say that they've been deceived on purpose. I can't speak to that issue. All I can say with 100% clarity is that um, it doesn't have to be a conspiracy for a person to believe that Hitler actually did not commit suicide in the Berlin bunker on April the 30th of 1945. Um, the weight of the uh, evidence and testimony does not substantiate um, that contention. So uh, there are so few people who are, you know, we start out talking about about uh, the different groups of people who uh, are troubled by this. I, I hope to have dialogue with those people. You know, believe it or not, I respect um, these people. I was one of them myself in terms of being on their side. Like, for instance, you would ask me, like, who objects to it and why. One of the, my favorite groups that really objects strenuously to it, I would call them the military squad. Now, these are, these are people who have mind-blowing amounts of information tucked away in their noggin uh, about World War II weaponry. And they think that, you know, it, that their knowledge of the weaponry and subs and planes and all the rest has somehow has, like, transit powers to prove that Hitler killed himself when they're not necessarily related. Now, that being said, uh, I adore these people because they're an endless source of information for me. Um, I respect these people because of um, the research they've done. And uh, although I would argue with them, I would never return the vitriol that they've sent my way in a few occasions, if you know what I mean. And the same thing goes with those who, who are kind of like the... Uh, you know, the biographers the, the, or the amateur psychologists that say, well, Hitler couldn't have done this because, you know, he was, he was ultimately was a suicidal personality or whatever, you know, simplistic um, sort, sort of um, psycho babble you want to throw at this and explain this complicated mess with, uh, you know, Hitler was just this because he was just mentally this, you know, um, or, uh, you know, just the people who, or against any form of revision of history whatsoever. It's always entertaining to deal with them because I, I come from a background, actually, I studied as an archaeologist to begin with, and it's very perplexing. I really didn't expect the um, amount of objection the, that would come from this particular group. The, I would call them the anti-revisionists. Like anything that you say that contradicts the standard narrative in any way, shape, or form, is going to—they're <laughs> going to get involved with you. They're going to put you down. They're going to—you know—it's just—it's kind of crazy. Um, they'll treat you as if you're irrational. Um, they'll call you all sorts of names. And conspiracy theorists, of course, is the favorite um, label they like to put on you. But ultimately, this book is written for them. It's—it's. It's, it addresses all of their concerns straight up and, and in a way that I hope will um, convince them that this subject requires a deeper dive than it's been given in the past. And also, there's no one single place a person could go if they have questions to see all of the eyewitness testimony, to address all of the evidence that's been presented by you know various experts over the years in one place. So 
my second biggest intention in writing Hitler's Suicide Reasonable Doubt was to do that, was to write one book where all those things could be addressed at once and related to one another, and the reader could be guided through that process. And um, my writing style is just, uh, it's just extremely transparent. I know it's annoying to some people because they don't like to hear what I think. But when I write, I, 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 I tell the reader, here's the path I went down first, and I discovered this. And then it led me to that. And I then try to tie all that together with each and every witness and each and every piece of evidence. So, again, I'm becoming redundant here, but my ultimate intention is to reach out to anyone who's willing to listen and to convince those who are willing to talk about it. And I know there are some who are not even willing. They won't even they won't even discuss the topic because it's, for some reason, so offensive to them. But I think there's something for all of those different objectors in my book. And I think if they read it, I think if their mind wasn't changed, then they're showing their prejudice. Hmm. Peter. No. Okay. I have just a question on Ava Braun. uh, Yes. Now, we know... Uh, his, I mean, what they have in history that he uh, married her in the bunker, right? And uh, and so then committed suicide. So the question would be, would be a person like this, would he have personally executed Ava Braun, or did she escape with him? If if in case, if indeed he did leave, then is there a possibility of researching the descendants of Ava Braun or the family to see if she kind of maybe texted everybody <laughs> in 1969? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, so yeah. something to the effect that there might be an area of research with Ava Braun and, uh, and what the family thought. Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, Ava Braun did escape with Hitler. Um, there's no doubt in my mind about that. The marriage is, huh, Wow. Talk about historical frauds. Uh, one of the most interesting things that I encountered w- was just dealing with the marriage document. Um, if people don't like details, they shouldn't read my book, but I can tell you this. It's a fraud. Not only is it a fraud, but it, it, it's, I, I think I've demonstrated 100% that it was a fraud perpetrated by Borman with the intent to deceive and that it was done long before April 29th, 1945, when it's supposedly dated. So, uh, yeah, um, Ava Braun escaped with Hitler. The, the body, for instance, that the Soviets had or claimed that they had, that was Ava Braun's, uh, of course, they never took an autopsy photo. Not a single one. Uh, same thing with Hitler. There are no autopsy photos. They supposedly conducted this you know, intricate autopsy and they took this measurement and that measurement, which in my book I explain is actually impossible for them to have done. But in any case, um, even those people who were absolutely convinced by the forensic evidence that the Soviets were showing to the world and based their conclusions upon the forensic evidence of the Soviet autopsy. Even those people as time went on became skeptical. I'll give you an example. One of the most brilliant um, forensic odontologists ever to live and breathe 
Radar Sognes from Norway. He later was at the University of California, and he, for 10 years, looked into the dentition question um, and had access to the interrogations of Dr. Blotchke, who was Hitler's uh, dentist, um, and uh, uh, Kate Hauserman, who was the uh, dental technician, uh, chairside technician, and Echtman, who was the uh, creator, the technician, the creator of Hitler's, some of Hitler's dental work and also some of Eva Braun's dental work. Even Sognais, although he pro proclaimed in 1973, for instance, that um, he was convinced that the teeth that the Russians say they have are Hitler's teeth because of, you know, matching points, this, this, and this, and this. Brilliant arguments on his part. But a mere four or five years later, he already was reassessing that because of what he found out about what they were saying about Eva. None of it matches. None of it makes any sense. And he said so. So, you know, the way I like to take a look at some of the strongest arguments for dealing with that kind of forensic evidence with a with Ava had already actually already been addressed in the late 70s to the mid 80s. Um, make a long story short, all of the leading forensic odontologists had concluded, like Dr. Lester Luntz, for instance, that no, that this this does not match Ava Braun's teeth and jaw. Uh, the, what the Russians say they have, the Soviets say that, is not her, period. So, of course, this brings up the logical question, well, this is the body that they found with Hitler, supposedly, right next to his, supposedly burned in the same condition. Um, I suppose we could uh, we could argue that you know why would we believe that Hitler that they had Hitler's um, actual teeth and jaw um, if Ava's they didn't really have Ava Braun's uh, and they discovered right. wounds and in the Soviet autopsy they even they even mentioned wounds to her body they're a physical impossibility. And bleeding to her body, this physical impossibility for her, um, un unless she was hit, for instance, by shrapnel prior to death. So the things that they describe in the autopsy are impossible. Um, and I would argue that getting back to the question of Hitler's autopsy, that what the Soviets claim they have is a complete lie, uh, and purposely so. And, and the reason I believe this is because the the Soviets, all they really had was a bag of bones. And I'm not kidding you. Um, there are two very dependable witnesses who saw what the Soviets had with their own eyes, only two. Um, and one of them was a, a British intelligence officer who described these, uh, what he saw in around uh, June the 5th or 6th of 1945, what he was shown, the Soviets had. And to make a long story short, uh, the Soviets could not have performed an autopsy on what he saw with all the details that they're claiming. And keep in mind that the autopsy never came, did not come out until 1968. It was not presented to the public even until Lev, Be Lev Bezemensky's book 
1968, which detailed for the first time the you know secret documents from the Soviet archives, including the you know the autopsy documents. So um, another doctor who was a a um, of Romanian extraction, who was in Berlin at the time, he was uh, asked to help to identify Hitler's remains, and he was led to three piles of human remains that were so badly burned they were just essentially piles of charred ash. And so when you start when you start um, comparing the stories of of what that the Soviets actually had to what they're saying the autopsy, it it doesn't add up in any way, shape, or form. Hmm. Pretty amazing story. Uh, so where, where do people get the book, and where do they find you? Do you have a website? Yeah, peterdavidor.com is the website. Just my full name, peterdavidor.com, and my book is available on Amazon.com. Fantastic. We're going to have that linked up as well to our website, so people listening can do one click and find you and the book. So um, great. We appreciate you uh, coming on and talking about your new book. Um, our guest has been Peter David Orr, and the book is called Hitler's Suicide, Reasonable Doubt. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This is Peter of something with media.